Good morning, Graham Emanuel. Is God with us? Amen. All right, very good. Yes, I encourage you, as Pastor Jay said, if we are the body of Christ, if we are one united family together, then let's be a family that talks to our Father together by coming together to pray together to our Lord and Savior. Uh, So yeah, I do encourage you, stick around after second service. We're going to have a prayer time. I'm going to be there. My wife's going to be there. I encourage you guys to be there in fellowship uh, with us as well. Uh, But let's now, as we get ready to open up God's word, let's pray that his miraculous word and the spirit that dwells in us will work and that it will result in a change and an impact in our lives and here in this community. So let's pray that God will work through his word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word. The same word that you used to create Mount Rainier is the same word that you used to communicate your love for us. And we thank you for that, Lord. May your words not just comfort us, may they not just encourage us, but may they convict us, may they change us, and may they equip us to glorify you by acting like And we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was destined to become a theological star. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was born in 1906 in Germany to two parents who, in their own right, were both noted Christian scholars. By the time he was 21 years old, he had already received his doctorate in theology. He was too young to be ordained in the Lutheran church, so at 21, he was forced to become a professor at Union Theological Seminary in New York City at just 21 years old. He had his whole life before him, and it was expected that he would become one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. While teaching in New York City, he eventually returned back to Germany, expecting to become a professor there, expecting to become an ordained pastor there. But in 1933, the Germany that Dietrich Bonhoeffer returned to was not the same Germany that Dietrich Bonhoeffer left. Because in 1933, the Third Reich had rose to power, and Germany was now Nazi Germany. And instead of having this very comfortable post in a large church and uh, in a large university, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was now forced to serve in the underground church. He was forced to actually resist the Third Reich in Nazi Germany, and he gave up his career as a result of it. But it was during this season of his life that a change happened in Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In a letter that he wrote, he described that during this season of his walk with the Lord, during this season of his Christianity, he said that his faith changed from mere phraseology into reality. The mere concepts that he knew about Christianity were now concepts that he was forced himself to actually live out while he was being persecuted by the the Gestapo and by Nazi Germany. And it was during this time as Hitler was rising to power, as the world was creeping towards World War II, that this underground pastor and underground professor wrote what some consider to be the greatest Christian work of the 20th century called The Cost of Discipleship. 
And it's in this book called The Cost of Discipleship that Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes what he calls cheap grace. This kind of Christianity that he had observed in America, that he had observed in himself, all before being first forced to serve the Lord in a new and persecuted way under Nazi Germany. He had to say this about what he called cheap grace. Bonhoeffer wrote that cheap grace is the mortal enemy of our church. Our struggle today is for costly grace. Cheap grace means grace as doctrine, as a principle, as a system. It means forgiveness of sins as a general truth. It means God's love as merely a Christian idea of God. The world finds in this church a cheap cover-up for its own sins, for which it shows no remorse, and from which it has even less desire to be set free. Cheap grace is thus a denial of God's living word, and a denial of the incarnation of the word of God. Cheap grace means the justifying of one's sin without the justification of oneself. Cheap grace is that grace which we bestow on ourselves. Graham Emanuel Baptist Church, I ask us, have we bought into a cheap grace? Do we buy into a grace that is simply full of feelings, full of emotions, a cheap grace that serves as a blank check for us to live our lives the way that we want to live them? Have we bought into a cheap grace that sees salvation merely as a magic spell that we can summon with the right words and a prayer at five years old? Have we bought into a cheap grace that we turn merely into home decor or as a lyric in a song that sounds nice but has no real impact on our lives? This kind of cheap grace, it may draw lots of people, but it impacts few lives. It makes more money, but it makes little difference. It may have many things to offer for Christians living in comfort, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer found out that this kind of cheap grace has little to offer to Christians who are living under Nazi Germany. Perhaps you have bought into this fraudulent kind of grace, this scam of grace, this this knockoff kind of gospel that appears to be the real legitimate thing from Scripture, but is really just a cheap, gilded version of the real and actual thing. If you're the kind of Christian that says that you prefer to worship God in your own way, or that you have your own private walk with the Lord, or that you know that God loves you and that most of all that that's going to comfort you as you live your life the way that you want to live it, it's very possible that you also have been duped into buying this kind of cheap grace. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls for a costly grace. And it's going to be this exact kind of costly grace that Paul is going to talk about in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. So turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, And remember that while you're turning there, Paul is writing this letter to a church that he had never met. The first half of chapter 1 represents the introduction to these people who he hasn't met in this letter that he is writing to them. And remember what we have looked at over the past few weeks, that Paul is being thankful for the way that they are growing in the Lord. He is thankful for the ways that they are serving the Lord. 
Specifically in verse 5, he talks about how happy he is that they have heard and they have received the gospel. That word gospel, it comes from a Greek word, euangelion. It's where we get the word evangelism from. It means good news. And it is good news. Grace is good news. That we have sinned before our creator. That the person who made us and owns us and has a standard for us, that we have fallen short of it, and that we deserve punishment, we deserve death, we deserve hell, but that the same God who can judge us and who created us is also the same God who sent a substitute for us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to take the penalty for the sin that we ourselves did, the punishment that we deserve, so that by confessing our sinfulness to God, repenting from our life of sin, and trusting in Christ as our substitute, we can be free of the penalty that we've deserved and instead have a relationship in salvation with our Creator. That's the gospel that Paul is talking about. And it is a good gospel. But it is also a costly one. Because even though we call the gospel the free gift, it's only free for us because it was expensive for him. It has value. When we talk about a costly gospel, we're not talking about the kind of gospel that we need to pay for or that we need to earn. We're talking about the kind of gospel that was paid for and that did have a cost and that that cost was Jesus. That's what Paul is emphasizing in this first chapter in his letter to the Colossians. And as we looked at last week, he talked about how he wants the Colossians to grow in their knowledge of this gospel. His prayer is that they will increase, as you see in verse 9, in wisdom and in knowledge. This good news of what Christ has done for us is something that we need to turn to and grow in and learn again and again. But the question is, why? How do we learn and how do we grow in our knowledge of the gospel, in our knowledge of the Lord, in such a way that does not just result in a cheap grace of emotionalism, but a costly grace of something deeper? That's going to be what Paul lays out in verse 10. And it's going to be our big idea for this morning, the big idea of this passage, that a true costly grace is something that actually bears fruit in your life. That the big idea, we can put it on the screen, is that knowing Christ means acting like Christ. That if we are truly going to know the true authentic gospel, this costly gospel, this costly grace that Bonhoeffer describes, then knowing it is going to result in acting like it. And Paul is going to make that clear in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. And this makes sense because if you look at the first words of verse 10, look at how that verse starts off. He starts off by saying, so that. The whole point of verse 10 is to explain why verse 9 matters. In verse 9, he says that he wants the Colossians to grow in spiritual knowledge and wisdom. He wants them to grow in their knowledge of God and their knowledge of the gospel. But not just as an ends unto itself. Which is so common for what many of us, including me, tend to do when it comes to sermons and when it comes to Bible study. Oh, wow, isn't that interesting? 
Oh, wow, isn't this comforting? Oh, isn't this nice? Oh, I never knew that before. But we never take it deeper. Paul, in verse 10, he writes, so that, because he wants our knowledge of the gospel to actually result in something. He wants us knowing Christ to result in us acting like Christ. And we see that in what will be our first point for this morning. He says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Costly grace means that we are to walk and that we are to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. And again, notice the emphasis that Paul places on that active verb. He says that he wants the, uh, the Colossians to grow and to increase in their knowledge, not just so that they can think, not just so that they can reflect, not just so that they can ponder or they can meditate, but so that they can actively walk. Paul describing the Christian life as a walk was something that was very unique to Paul. We have other examples of non-biblical writing in the Greek language during this time, and we never see walk being used as a metaphor or as an illustration for the Christian life. But it's very interesting that Paul would choose to do so because there's something about someone's walk that is very persistent and pervasive and personal. I imagine that you can probably tell who's coming down the stairs at your house based on their walk. Based on the way that they carry their steps, based on the heaviness or the lightness or the rhythm, you can tell who is walking around the house based on the way that they walk. It's something that's inescapable. Maybe you even have inside jokes kind of teasing each other, the ones that you love, about how they walk. We all have our own little personality when it comes to how we walk, and we can't escape it. We may not think that we have a certain way of walking, but each and every one of us do, and everyone can see it. And in the same way, just as we have a physical walk, which we bring with us wherever we go, that has unique traits and characteristics, Paul is also saying that each and every one of us also has a spiritual walk. This past year, the movie Elvis came out, and the actor who played Elvis, I believe he had just been nominated for an Academy Award for his depiction of this famous singer. And the reason why he is getting so many accolades and so much credit for depicting Elvis is because he has figured out how to imitate every single one of the king's mannerisms. He learned how to carry his jaw just like Elvis, how to draw out his words just like him, how to hang his eyelids to look just like Elvis did, and even to walk and to carry his steps in a way that imitates the king of rock and roll. You know what my next line is going to be. If he can do that for the king of rock and roll, we can learn to imitate the way that the king walks of this creation, of this world. Paul says that the reason why we are to grow in our knowledge is so that we will not just think and reflect and have a Christianity of phraseology, as Bonhoeffer observed, but that we will actually have a Christianity of reality that displays itself in the way that we behave on a day-to-day basis. But it's not only about our walk. Paul doesn't just say, that he wants the Colossians to grow in spiritual knowledge and wisdom so that they can try to walk a certain way 
or that they can have a walk that may be different for every single person. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that Christians have this way of describing their Christianity as a walk, and they describe it as something that's very private and very customized? They'll say, well, that person's on his own walk with the Lord, and I'm on my own walk with the Lord. God only walks one way, and we either walk like our Savior or we don't. It's binary. Our walk with the Lord is not something that is custom to every individual. It's something that we are called to, all of us as individuals. And Paul is making that point in this first point where he says that he not only believes that we should walk as a result of knowing God and knowing the gospel, but that we should walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. And this is going to be a point here where we have to be so careful. He uses this elsewhere. You'll see it in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, the Ephesians he's writing to, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Here's another example. We see this in Philippians chapter 1. We see it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He talks about your manner of life being worthy. In Thessalonians, he says, we exhorted each one of you and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner Worthy of God. Notice how he is often putting the word walk next to the word worthy. Those are two words that appear next to each other often. He doesn't just want every Christian to have their own private individual walk. He wants them to walk in such a certain way. And the way that he describes that walk, one which all Christians should be doing, is in a way that is worthy of the Lord. And I want to let you know that this does not mean that you are being called to as a Christian to walk in such a certain way that proves yourself to the world. That is not what Paul is talking about here. He is not saying that we are supposed to walk in such a way that shows the Lord that we are worth saving. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to walk in such a way that we meet God halfway for our salvation. Instead, what he's saying is he wants us to walk in a certain way. God wants us to walk like him to show the value, to show the worthiness of the gospel that we claim. You know, even this word, worth, when we see it used in the Roman Empire, uh, very commonly, the, the root understanding of this word was referring to a balancing of the scales. That when you were trading and when you were uh, handing money back and forth, you wanted to see whether this gold coin actually had value to it. You wanted to see whether this gold coin actually had a cost or whether it was just a cheap knockoff coin. And because coins were mostly handmade during that time in history, and it wasn't like today where any small imperfection or difference could be spotted out as a counterfeit, most coins had little unique differences to it the way that they would determine whether or not a coin was worthy or whether or not it was authentic was by weighing it on the scale. And so they would put that gold coin on the scale and it would tip it and they would add a certain amount of weight to balance out the scale. And if it took the right amount of weight to balance the scale and lift up that gold coin, then that proved that the gold was authentic. But if it only took a little bit of weight to tip the scale, then that showed that the coin was a fraud. Paul says that Christians should walk in such a way that shows to the world the authenticity 
of the gospel. We are not supposed to obey to prove for ourselves our own salvation. That's a matter of faith. That's something that we trust in as coming from the Lord completely based on what he has done, not on what we have done. The reason why we obey is not to prove to ourselves the authenticity of our salvation, but to prove to a lost world the authenticity of the Savior. It's like, it's like all your friends and family, it's like your coworkers, it's like your neighbors, they're all huddled around your life as if it was a scale. And they know that you're a Christian. They see the things that you post on Facebook, little Bible verses and little Christian sayings. They probably know that you're here at church right now this morning. And they are looking at your life as if it was a scale. They are looking at your words and your actions and behavior to see whether or not this thing that you claim to believe is authentic. Does your obedience show the authenticity of your salvation? Or does it suggest to the world that the Jesus that you believe in is a fraud, a counterfeit coin? Oh, look at that. The works, they don't add up. They claim that Jesus has changed their life, but their actions suggest otherwise. Let's pack it up and go home, guys. This person's Savior is no different from anyone else's. It's just another dead guy. It's just another ideology. It's just another nice thing to think to make yourself feel better on your deathbed. It's no different from the rest of us. Let's go home. We do not want to have a witness that says that. We want to grow in our knowledge for the Lord so that we can obey in such a way that shows the costliness, that shows the value, that shows the worth of the salvation that we claim. But Paul continues in verse 10 to our second point, that he says that we should grow in our knowledge of God, not just to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, but to also do so in a way that is pleasing to him. We see this in the second half of this verse, where he says in verse 10, fully pleasing to him. He says, so as to walk in a manner of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Which brings us to our second point, which you can see there that we are called to walk in a way that pleases the Lord in every way. So often we think of our Christianity as a long list of do-nots. Don't do this, don't do that. Try not to sin in this way, try not to sin in that way. I think that's why we become so sensitive to the idea of obedience. I believe that's why we are so quick to call obedience legalism. Salvation is not opposed, as one, as one theologian said, Salvation in grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. It's not opposed to obedience. It's not opposed to striving to glorify God in all that you do, but it is opposed to doing it in such a way that honors yourself more than him or in such a way that puts the emphasis on how good you are instead of how good God is which is why that our Christian life should not just be a list of us trying to avoid sins. Our Christian life should be an attempt, and it should be a focus on glorifying and pleasing God in all that we do. Think about how much more joyful our walks would be if we looked at every opportunity that God put in front of us as an opportunity to please him. Instead of just thinking of the sin to avoid, what if we looked at the obedience to pursue 
What if we looked at the chances that God put before us in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, and looked for the ways that we as his children could make our Father happy? Paul calls for the Colossians to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, but also in a way that is pleasing to them. And then finally, let's go actually to the third point as we end our look at verse 10. He says now, finally, in verse 10, that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And then he says that two things will happen. He says, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. As we look at every opportunity to show the value and the worthiness of the gospel, as we look at every good work, as Paul puts it, to make our Father happy, to bring Him joy, to please Him, just like any child wants to please their Heavenly Father, Paul says that in every good work, two continuous actions are going to happen. Those two continuous actions are, in every good work, if you are walking with the Lord, number one, you are going to bear fruit, meaning you are going to give evidence of what you believe in in a way that is visible to those around you. And he describes this as a continuous action in verse 10, and he describes it as an active action. It's something that we are actively doing and pursuing, that in every good work we are bearing fruit. We are showing something to a lost world. But the second thing that happens when we pursue obedience in every way to please our Heavenly Father, to walk in a manner that is worthy, when we do that, it also results in us passively being increased in the knowledge of God. He says it right there. He says, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Really, the better way for the ESV to translate that would have been to be increased because that is a passive verb in the Greek. So it's coming full circle. It's almost like a a spiral that is happening in the Christian life where Paul says to the Colossians that I want you to grow in your knowledge of the Lord so that you can walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. And when you walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, you are being increased in the knowledge of the Lord. Your knowledge results in fruit, and your fruit results in knowledge. And that is a process, that is a cycle that we call sanctification. Let us not falsely believe that the only way to grow in the Lord is by studying our Bible. We grow in the Lord by studying our Bible and then doing the Bible and applying it and exercising our faith and seeing every opportunity to obey as an opportunity to display the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what Dietrich Bonhoeffer did in Nazi Germany. Because as part of the resistance... He actually became a spy. He became part of the underground workings against Hitler in Nazi Germany. And during the war, he was imprisoned as a spy. And days before the Allies overtook Germany, was hung and executed as a traitor against Nazi Germany. For him, grace was truly costly. In that same book that I mentioned at the beginning of our sermon this morning, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uttered the famous line that whenever Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. 
And that's exactly what Bonhoeffer did. And in that work, he went on to say that cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without repentance. It is baptism without church discipline. It is communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without the living incarnate Jesus Christ. It is costly because it calls us to follow. But it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It is costly because it costs people their lives. But it is grace because it results in eternal life. Let's have a type of Christian walk that imitates God and shows the value and the worth of our grace by showing its value in our trust and behavior in imitation of Jesus in the world around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the very costly grace that you gave us. Thank you for the immeasurable worth that it, that it holds, that was paid for by the blood of your son, Jesus. And Lord, may it have an impact in our lives in such a way that it tips the scales of our behavior, that it has an immeasurable weighty effect on the way that we think and the way that we behave. May it have a noticeable difference on those around us. Thank you for your death and resurrection through your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray in your son's name.